What a great declaration for us this morning as we kind of start our time here together. I'm so glad that y'all are here, so glad to be standing up here. And um, I know that it's sometimes tough to get up after these uh, late football games, um, but we had a win. Even if it wasn't a great win, we got a win yesterday, and it's easier to wake up to than a loss. So um, anyways, I, I went to Carolina, of course, and met my wife there, and we both were uh, public relations majors, so we were hanging out in the journalism school, if some of you can relate to that. And we became good friends down there, didn't really date because um, she was interested in um, other guys, and um, I, was, I was interested in her, and she knew that, and she says she wasn't so sure that maybe I was... Not so clear, but I was, and she was interested in the others, and that's fine. We've dealt with it. But anyways, uh, I'll fast forward through a long, romantic, very interesting story to the very end. uh, uh, Not the very end, but right after college, the end of college, whenever we um, were both living in Columbia, both working, both single. And I just found it so convenient to have her around because the role had changed. Now she was really interested in me, head over heels. And Rachel, if that's not true, you can come up and tell everybody, but it's the truth. Um, And I'm not going to necessarily totally um, commit to this comment because I have to go home where she's there after this. But um, I may have referred to her as a stalker at one point in time. But who can blame her? Seriously. So I really don't think that highly of myself. But anyways, uh, so here we were and it was quite convenient. You know, if I wanted to go see a movie, I had somebody to go with. Hey, Rachel, want to go? Of course I do. You know, and uh, so. I may have, at one point, taken her to Harbison to go see a movie, bought the ticket for her, taken her to dinner, lavished her with gifts, and then not called her for a week later. I may have done that before in our past, but I know, total jerk, and um, we've dealt with that, and we've moved on. Um, But that's kind of how it was for us. So I felt the pressure, even though it was very convenient to have her around, I felt the pressure that we had to figure out what's going on here. And really the pressure wasn't for me, it was from her, you know. And so a month or two into this whole deal, um, I do what any romantic guy would do. I call her up, it's that night, and I say, hey, you want to go to IHOP? And um, we uh, head over to the IHOP that no longer exists on Divine Street. And um, I think I had a cup of coffee, she had chocolate milk, and we had a couple biscuits. And, uh, you know, sat there and hung out and talked for an hour about nothing. And she was starting to get antsy because she knew what needed to happen and I wasn't doing it. And I was sweating because I didn't want to have this conversation that I knew I needed to. But eventually we went there. We had the dreaded DTR. And um, I know that some of you all are familiar with these DTR conversations. Others of you, I'll inform you, DTR has defined the relationship. And we had to define the relationship. Um, this is uh, just to explain it. It's pretty much whenever a couple is, you know, hanging out and they kind of like each other, but it get a little squishy when they're talking about whether we're going to be exclusive or whether this is going to last very long. Um, and so, to make things a little clear for some of you from a different generation, we were trying to decide if we were going to go steady is what we were trying to do. So um, anyways, I finally decided we've got to do the DTR. I pulled out a napkin. Pass it over to her after I wrote down, Rachel, will you, be, will you go with me? Check yes or no. <laughs> Hand it to her. That's not exactly how it happened. But I will say this. A few years later, we walked this aisle, and Caleb, our, our son, showed up a couple months ago. And so DTRs, that's what happens, okay? Uh, but anyways, uh, as we kind of get through that whole deal, I, the term DTR may be kind of new. and may be getting a little outdated, a little uh, corny for some. Um, but it's not really a new concept And it's also not always been exclusively used for romantic relationships. In fact, I think in Jesus' day, 
Being in relationship with him required having some sort of spiritual DTR. Because we don't ever read about people who uh, encounter Jesus and that later they're like, man, that was a great conversation we had. Where do you want to go eat? You know, that's not how it happened. The conversations we know of where people were like, that guy knew everything about me, even stuff I don't tell people. He's got to be the Messiah. And others saying, I don't know if he's the Messiah or not, but I know I couldn't see a few minutes ago and now I can. So there's something huge about this guy going on. You know, those are the kind of conversations that people had with Jesus and where they walked away because Jesus demanded a whole lot more than just an encounter. Jesus, as, as usual, would gently but insistently ask people to DTR between them and God. And the fundamental question, uh, question typically involved an invitation that went something like this. Come follow me. What an unbelievable thought. Jesus telling people, come follow me. You can come and be around me. You can learn from me and you can learn to be like me. And that was the invitation that was sent. And we read that so many people dropped everything and went after him. It's an unbelievable thought. Well, there's a song that I love that's a prayer to God that says, come and make my heart your home. But, you know, that's an actual possibility. You know, in our day, Jesus doesn't walk our streets and he doesn't preach in local towns. But he does say, if you want me to, me and my father will come and make a house in your heart. We'll make our home in your heart. But some of you may be asking, you know, because what does that involve? It involves a relationship with Jesus. But you're saying, who's Jesus really? I mean, I know who he is. I understand the whole cross thing. But who is Jesus? Well, this is really a centuries-old question. In fact, Jesus himself posed this one, uh, question at one point in time. In Matthew 16, we read about how Jesus was uh, out with his disciples. And they were having a conversation at a town called Caesarea Philippi. And um, he turns to his disciples and he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's what he called himself sometimes, the Son of Man. And they said, um, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And we're going to stop right there. There's a great verse right after that. We're going to stop right there. Because that's something we really need to think about. We need to really reflect right there. Because as far as I'm concerned, this is the biggest question you could ever face. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. I know that college throws some curveball questions at you. You just went through the fourth week of college. So some of you probably had your first exam, you know, and uh, they were probably curveball. You're like, he didn't teach on that. It wasn't in the book, but I don't know. And you, A, you know, you just put it down there. You don't have any clue. Curveball questions. Well, this is probably the most fundamental question you'll face because I think it impacts so much. I think it impacts everything that you're going to face in life. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And you may not be prepared to answer that question quite yet. And that's okay. But by the time we get to the end of this service, I'm going to offer you an invitation to define the relationship with God. To come and follow Jesus. But before we get there, we have a few questions that we need to ask about Jesus and answer. So let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we have this time here uh, just to come before you. And Lord, uh, we know that there's a lot of people that uh, we could hear from today, including me since I've got the mic on. But God... You're the only person we want to hear from. You're the only being we want to know from. Because you're the only one worth listening to. So God, we pray that you would speak. God, we pray that you'd be the center of our attention. God, we pray that you'd help us to uh, keep our eyes on you. And just open our hearts to what it is you'd have to teach us. We love you. And God, we pray that as we're gathered here, that we'll learn to love you more. So in your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the beginning... We're told that God created the heavens and the earth. And nobody's there, been there 
to uh, say that's true or not, but that's what he says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, of course, this is a hotly contested issue. We have researchers who are already trying to prove that, you know, that's not exactly how it went. But when he, when he did create the world, he said these words, let there be light. Most people would just say that and that's it. But all of a sudden, out of his mouth came energy that was flying at 186,000 miles per second. Just bursting out. And all of a sudden, nothing became something when he said, let there be light. Sounds an exciting time to be there. But Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens uh, made. That's he just spoke and all of a sudden they were. And then we read this really interesting part that says, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So we're talking about a God who says a light and all of a sudden 186,000 miles per second, it starts flying out, you know, and it's there. And then all of a sudden he starts breathing. And this is what comes out. We're going to show you a picture. This is what comes out whenever he starts breathing. Something that looks like this. And we're familiar with this. We like to take advantage of this at the Isle of Palms during the summer. This is the sun, our closest starry host. Um, that we see out there and it looks pretty, you know, we, we, when we were kids, we drew pictures on it with smiley faces, but don't let it fool you. This is a very fierce thing. The sun, it's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on its surface. And so we can be very thankful that it's 93 million miles away today so that it takes eight minutes for that light to get to us any closer and we'd be history. But the sun is a huge thing that doesn't even do it justice. It is one million times the size of the earth. And I know you can't comprehend one million times the size of the earth. I can't comprehend one million times the size of the earth. But I heard a man who used an analogy. He said it's like a golf ball. And if you compare the golf ball to the Empire State Building with five more Empire State Buildings stacked on top of it, that's the comparison of the earth with the sun. I've got a picture to show you. That little dot that you can't read, that's an approximation of what the earth is like compared to the sun. So we're talking huge in fact, though, this, this, and this is what God breathes out, is things like this. But this is not the biggest or the brightest of the stars. It maybe is pretty average compared to the rest of them. But the big ones, those are the ones that give us a real good concept of who God is. I'm going to show you a couple pictures of these. This is, this is the star Eta Carinae, which is um, actually exploding right now as you're looking at it. And it outshines our sun in an amazing way. It outshines our sun in the same way that williams Bryce Stadium outshines a cigarette lighter five million times brighter we're talking huge we're talking brighter than we we're glad it's further away than 93 million miles because then we don't have to worry with it here on our planet so that's another star that god breathes out another star that he breathes is called beetlejuice which has the diameter of a hundred million miles i know huge can't comprehend under a million miles But this is larger. It's actually twice as large as the Earth's orbit around the sun. That's how big this single star is. We're talking huge, bigger than our minds could ever comprehend. And in Psalm 19, it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day utter speech and night into night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So these stars and all that we see in the sky is shouting out about God, about who he is. They're declaring his glory and nobody else's. Well, I don't know if I could speak fully to the issue, but I'm pretty sure that the heavens are declaring that this being that we call God is huge. And we've only talked about three stars. 
Astronomers venture a feeble attempt to say that the number estimate that the number of stars in the universe are equal to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches of our world. That's a lot of stars. And they're all out there and they all came out of his breath. And the Hubble Space Telescope, it sends back infrared images that of galaxies that are perhaps 12 billion light years away. That's 12 billion times 6 trillion just laying out there with tons of stars inside those galaxies. And conservative estimates say that there's 350 billion of those galaxies out there. Don't you wonder why God would put these things out there? Because there have been generations and generations and generations of people who didn't even know about galaxies. They didn't know to look for them. They'd never heard of them, you know. But they're out there and it's as if God's just hiding them. And I think they're screaming out about him that God is limitless. That he goes on and on and on. That he sits on a throne where he is surrounded with unapproachable light. And day and night these beings are around him that are shouting daily. On and on. How great and how mighty and how powerful is our God. His, his reign will never end. How he is worthy to be of all the glory, to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise that all of them and all of us and every man that's ever walked this planet and every creature that's ever been created could ever offer up, offer up to anyone or anything. And God has a real good concept of who he is. He knows he's the king of kings and he knows he's the beginning and the end. He knows he's the one who was and is and is to come. He knows that heaven is his throne. And listen to this. He calls earth his footstool. He just props his feet here. That's how big this God is. And maybe like me, more than being able to comprehend how big God is, I'm sitting here going, how small am I? Because he's huge and I'm small. And maybe being, rather than being able to answer the question of who do you say that I am, I'm thinking, who in the world do I think I am? Who do I think I am? R.C. Sproul writes, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Compare yourself to God. Well, you know, it's very easy to run with that train of thought of who do I think that I am? And why do I think that God would even be mindful of me, have any interest in me compared to him? I'm a mere grasshopper. So why would God have anything or any thoughts toward me? And to understand that, we have our own, it's the greatest gift we've ever been given, and it's our own translation of God into our world. Colossians 2, 9 says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So in Jesus, we get to see God. In Jesus, we see God with flesh on. The God whose stride is the size of the galaxies and whose beginning we could never begin to comprehend and whose end will never come, whose hands fashioned the very smallest of atoms, and whose voice spoke into existence the very possibility of light. That God chose to limit himself to flesh. And to walk our planet, to speak our language, to breathe our air, to experience temptation and loneliness and pain and death. This is our God. And you know what? We've been asking a lot of questions, but there's another one that has to be asked. Why? Why would a huge God put himself, put flesh around himself? Why would the omnipotent, all-powerful God choose to put limits on himself? Why in the world would he decide that he's going to allow suffering to come his way? 
Who is he to do that? What is the purpose of God in the flesh? And it's a question we have to answer if we're ever going to get to the bigger question, which is, who do you say that I am? And I think above all that Jesus came so that we could understand God and know this. God desires a relationship with us. And I don't even know if you're overwhelmed with that thought. Because maybe you're distracted, maybe you've zoned out, or maybe you're just thinking about how huge the sun was, you know. And you've missed the whole idea of God here. But this is a phenomenal idea. That the God of all might and all power, who breathes out stars, who's spoken to existence, the possibility of light says, I want a relationship with you. I want to be in relationship with you. You know, here's the deal. It's not that Jesus just demands the relationship. He lovingly wants to have that relationship. And I know that this may not seem applicable to you right now. You may be like, you know, Wes, I'm in college right now just trying to figure out life. I don't have a major. I don't have a minor. And I sure the job, the economy is not going to help me get a job after this. And you want me to figure out God right now? And I know. I know it's a huge question. But I know that when you also maybe hear words like this from people like me, and you say, wow, God is huge. And if he's so big and so powerful, why in the world is he not doing something about my situation that's so far from good right now? Does he not even care? Does he not even see the mess that I'm in? I can't even see God. But the unseen God is made visible by the life of Christ, which is a beautiful thing. You know, despite what happens to us or what happens to those that are around us, Jesus Christ showed us that God is loving toward the innocent. That he shows compassion to the weak, that he heals the sick and that he raises up the dead. A God who doesn't seem uh, to answer prayers in your life, maybe, or doesn't seem distant, you know, at times of needs or appears to be absent from our lives is actually interested in us. And that's a huge understatement. He actually, more than we could ever comprehend, wants to have a relationship with you and with me. So you're at the toughest place in your life. And it's really cool that God breathes out stars and all, you know. But how can I know that God is going to bring me through this life and everything that I'm facing right now? Well, there's a great fact about Jesus that makes us to be able to survive this. That makes us to be able to get through this life. And it makes all the hardships we face a little bit easier to bear. And that is the fact that the cross is standing over all of history. And the cross is standing over this place right here and right now. Because it's on the cross that we can see God's real love and God's real compassion. It's a place where the star breather all of a sudden became the sin bearer. It's a place where the great and mighty God became mankind's savior. And it is proof for us today that he cares and he loves us. And it's proof that even though God doesn't always change the circumstances we're in, he can. But even though he doesn't, he didn't for his own son. That he's got a purpose in the midst of our circumstances. And not only that, but his purpose will prevail in spite of or because of those circumstances that we're facing. A chapter in scripture that's really gripped me this week that actually they sang a song about is in Isaiah 40. And uh, this chapter is, says a lot of great things. And in the middle of it, it says, do you know who God is? And it says, I, you know, I sit above the earth. And who are you going to compare me to? Are you going to, who are you going to compare me to? Because I call out the stars by name and every single one of them is there every night. So go ahead and decide who I'm like. Go ahead and say it. And then there's this curveball question that's in the middle of the chapter, unbelievably. At verse 27, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, 
and my just claim is passed over by my God. Because basically the nation of Israel who knew God real well and they know, we know you're huge, we know you breathe out the stars, but seriously, God, do you not see what I'm going through? Do you not see the pain that I'm facing? Do you not know that I can't make it one more day? And maybe you're sitting there saying the same thing. And you're like, I get the whole cross. I know that Jesus is suffering, but this is, this is awful what I'm facing. Can't you do something about it? And I don't know what that thing is, but God does. In fact, he says, offers another question Isaiah does here. It says, have you not known... Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord or we've heard it said those who wait a hope in the Lord. And so the idea there is those who are sitting in the middle of the worst of circumstances who feel like they can't go on any further. And don't just gloss over it to say, it's awful right now, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to hope and I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord God. Even though I face these awful circumstances, he says about those people, something he loves to do. It says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. He doesn't say those that wait on the Lord, God will change the circumstances. He says, I'll renew their strength. You keep on hoping and I'll keep on increasing the strength. You keep on waiting, and I'll keep on making it. I'll just bring you the energy that you need to face it. You'll mount mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. So basically the point is, when you're facing everything in life that seems awful, everything that seems like it's falling apart, God's saying, I'm going to hold on to you, even when you don't want to hold on to me. And that's what a relationship with God promises. So after Jesus posed this question to the disciples at the very beginning of who do you say that I am? One of the disciples answered the question. Verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got it right. He knew who Jesus was. You're not just some man. You're not a great teacher. But you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are God with flesh on I know who you are. And maybe for you, you're wondering if, you know, that's great to have a relationship with God, but I'm not sure that I'm good enough to have a relationship with God. Because, Wes, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm about to do. You don't know what I'm thinking right now. And so how in the world could somebody like me have a relationship with somebody who's so good like God? Well, you want to know what it, what it takes to have a relationship with this loving God? Well, I can tell you one thing. It's not by being good enough. That's not how you have a relationship with God. People don't get to heaven because they've been good enough. You know, Jesus Christ actually taught the opposite. He taught what nobody else had ever taught. He said, bad people get to have a relationship with me and go to heaven. Good people don't. And that sounds really backwards. And some people are like, where is he going with this one? But in the time whenever Jesus walked this earth, there were these certain religious leaders who had job description. And their job description was to be good. Everything they did was to be good. They washed their hands in a certain way to be good. They put on certain clothes in order to be good. And they, um, they did certain things on some days in order to be good and didn't do it on others in order to be good. And they wanted to set themselves apart as good. Why did they do that? Because they decided if we are so good and so set apart, then when all of a sudden the Messiah, God's chosen one, who's coming to rescue us, shows up, we're going to be like, we're so good, we can recognize him. That's him. That's what they were thinking. The irony is they totally missed it. 
But in Matthew 5.20, Jesus pointed out those Pharisees and those Sadducees. And he said, if you want to go to heaven, if you want a relationship with me, you're going to have to be better than them. And everybody's going, but they're the goodest people on this planet. How are we going to be better than them? And Jesus Christ said, unless your righteousness is better than the scribes, then you're hopeless. And me and you and the rest of the common people in the world would give up. (laughs) Because you'd be like, man, they got so much time committed to being good. I can't be that good. I don't have that kind of time. I can't do that. And then Jesus would walk up to the common person, to the unholy person, and he would say, and you're forgiven. And that person would be like, well, why am I forgiven? I haven't been doing anything good. But that's not how we have a relate. That's not how we become good. That's not how we get forgiven. That's not how we have a relationship with Christ. Jesus taught that the best of the best were not making it, but the worst of the worst were. Because Jesus didn't believe that good people can have a relationship with him. He didn't believe that good people get to go to be with God. He believed that forgiven people are able to go. In Luke 23, read about whenever Jesus was being crucified. And you've seen the pictures of this, you know, there's a, or the drawings, the paintings of a cross. And it had two crosses next to it because there were two criminals that were being crucified next to Jesus. And these were awful criminals because they were being put to death. In other words, they're not good enough to be slaves for us because they'll betray us even there. Let's just go ahead and kill them because of what they've done. And so the two criminals are being crucified. And in Matthew, we find out that they both were insulting Jesus. But in Luke, one of them kind of gets a hold of himself. And after one of the guys insults Jesus, the other criminal turns to him and says, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This guy wasn't good enough to be in paradise because he couldn't say, I'm going to be good enough now because now I'm going to do everything I need to do right. I'm not going to treat people badly. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to cheat because he was on the cross. In a few seconds, he's dead. You know, so this was no rededication. All of a sudden, he just kind of realized the situation he was in and he... He realized it's nothing I can do. And that's the best thing about being forgiven. It's about nothing you can do, but it's all about what's been done. That's the major difference. Forgiven people can have a relationship with God and go to heaven by throwing themselves at the mercy of the only one who could pay for their sins. You see that criminal when he turned to Jesus, he said, remember me because he realized something. I'm not going to be able to remember myself in a few minutes when this thing's over with. So I need somebody else to help me. And I'm going to recognize that you're the one. That needs to remember me. So Jesus, remember me. And then he realized something that was different about Jesus. He realized who Jesus was. Because he said, when you come into your kingdom, he realized Jesus wasn't of this world. That Jesus is of another place. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so I'm going to throw my mercy at you because you're my only hope. The only one that can forgive me. Because I'm not going to make it based on my own deeds. My deeds are what put me on this cross. But I need you, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. That's exactly what I'm looking for. That's what a relationship with me is all about. Following Jesus is about putting all the trust in the cross for the payment of all you've done wrong or everything that you're ever going to do wrong. It's not about what I do, but it's all about what God has done. Let's pray. Lord God, um, as we come now just to... Consider the words that have been mentioned, Lord. I pray that it's really very clear in our minds, God, what it means to have a relationship with you, God. And I pray that every person here who needs to get things straight, they need to define, they need to come follow. 
God, that they would do nothing less than do that. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's where we get to the part where I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that I was going to give you an invitation to define the relationship. An invitation to come and follow Jesus. And I know that some of you have heard this message before in churches where you grew up or in camps you went to, you know. And you're, you're like, I'm very familiar. As a matter of fact, I have a relationship with God. But then college comes along and you get bogged down. And you allow Jesus to slip out the back door. And you find yourself praying, maybe even attending a church or ministry function. But as far as following Jesus, you're far from that. And this invitation is for you. Just to come forward and to say, I want to, I want to get it straight today. I know I need to follow Jesus. I walked away from him. I need to start walking after him now. And that's what this invitation is for. Or another invitation for some of you are like, you know, I've never heard this before. I didn't know I could have a relationship with a star breather. I didn't know I could have a relationship with a God. And I think I want to do that. I think I want to just drop everything and come follow. That's what this invitation is for. You can come forward and do that. And then some of you... Um, it may be a whole lot different for you. Maybe you're like, I've still got a lot of questions. It's been very good what's been said, but I'm not sure I've got the answers to this whole question. Well, we've, we've got people that can chat with you about that. As you face those questions. Then some of you might be saying, you know, whenever you were talking about that, going through the worst time of my life, I'm in it right now. And I just need somebody just to encourage or to pray or to help or just, just listen. Well, we're just going to open it up for you too. Maybe you need to come get those things just before somebody else. And you can do that. And then others, it might be that I need to land right here at this church. And I, I, I want to be a part of what's going on here. And I want you to be a part of my life. And that's also what this invitation is for. So in a second, the choir is going to sing. And there are going to be some people standing down here. And if you, you, know, you feel the Lord leading or you, you know that you need to make a decision, this is the time. This is the time to do that. And you know, we do this to recognize what great things that you've done in society and in community. But it may be an also a time for you just to get things straight with God. And so don't hesitate. You come forward. We'll make sure we can help you as you make those decisions. So as the choir sings, I want to ask you all to stand and uh, you can respond.